Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to this week's episode of The Violin Podcast. I am your host, Eric Mugala, where I interview violinists from around the world. Thank you so much for joining us for this week's episode. I really, really appreciate it. If you're new to us, please make sure to hit the subscribe button so that way you get notified for when new episodes come out. It helps us out to provide more episodes for you. Can you believe it's the end of 2021? My goodness, I cannot imagine where I would be today if it wasn't for this podcast and providing a lot of great interviews for you. You know, this podcast started back in March 2020 and it's grown to 35 episodes. Today is the 35th episode of when this podcast is released. So I want to thank you, the listener, and the dedicated listeners who uh, have supported and listened to all these great guests that are coming on the Violin Podcast. But I also want to thank all the guests for providing their knowledge and for giving us wisdom into becoming a great violinist through violin tips, violin practice methods, and just getting a glimpse, a small glimpse of what it's like to be a violinist in today's, you know, performing circuit or being even being an educator. So before we get to the episode, as we approach the giving season of 2021, um, I just want to do a little plug um, that we are doing a little fundraising for the Violin Podcast just to cover some basic expenses, uh, such as keeping the website going, um, making sure that all the things um, like the behind the scenes are running smoothly. I invite you to give a $10 donation to the Violin Podcast. And what I'll do is I will leave a giving link in the show notes. So all you got to do is click on that and uh, give as much as you are able to. We would really appreciate any kind of support. The suggested donation is $10, but anything else would also, you know, will be really, really useful and helpful for us. And again, what I'm going to do is I'm going to leave a link, a giving link in the show notes. So that way it'll be easy for you to be relocated to that link. So now for the good stuff. My guest today is a New York-based violinist. His name is Gura Schmidt. He teaches at New York Steinhardt Music School and also is just a well-known soloist. He offers a lot of great wisdom and knowledge on the violin. And we also talk about his collaboration with a guest um, on the violin podcast of season two, Marcelo Gonzalez, and that's the G model ultralight shoulder rest and we get to talk about his um, entrepreneurial um, endeavors during the pandemic but also what it was like to be performing for the first time in 18 months so stick around to this episode which is going to happen right now Giora, it's such a pleasure to speak with you today and i'm as i said before when we were just like getting to know each other before the recording of the podcast that i'm a huge fan of your playing i'm a huge huge fan of your artistry and um, your ability to take control of the violin. Uh, I, I'm just a huge fan. That's enough said. But how are you doing today? <laughs> I, I appreciate it. It's, it's, it's nice to be with you, Eric. It's nice to see you. I, I, um, I'm a fan of what you've been doing, especially during this time um, where we've been so distant and not been able to really share music on a regular basis, where you've been sort of keeping awareness for all things violin, via social media and I'm I'm uh, incredibly proud to sort of be following you and also be part of this violinistic community so thank you for that um, we're all kind of thank trying you to do, we're, we're all kind of trying to do our part here um, I actually just got back from my first trip to Europe in two years um, I was fortunate to to play some concerts in Germany um, for two weeks and so I'm I'm drinking my my tea to try to stay awake here a little bit with the I was going to say whether that's coffee or tea that you have in your hand. <laughs> well, I, I I'm trying to, you know, balance the coffee and the tea so I'm not like so, Fair enough. like overly caffeinated just trying to stay level. Day 3 when I'm back is always the worst. I'm sure many of your you and your listeners might identify with that. So this is day 3 for me since I've been back. Oh, well, thank you so much for speaking with me. Do you have like a, like when you're traveling back and forth from continent to continent, do you have like a routine 
when you like when you come back stateside like how you adjust to the times change because i feel like well, that's something yeah. that's artists that artists don't really talk about is the time change you know yeah, like no, they the, have to be really fresh yeah no i mean i i um it is it's funny that you say that because that's something that we don't talk about so much we talk about like backstage concert routines like how many bananas does somebody eat or do they you know do they only eat brown all that bananas? potassium <laughs> all that potassium i mean i love a good banana but i also love um well for me the first thing i do when i get on a plane especially if it's a long flight is i change into sweatpants and a sweatshirt that's like the first thing that i do um and i try to sleep as much as i can especially going there um so i take melatonin and i try to just knock myself out so that at least when i arrive in the country with you know six seven five hour difference i'm ready to rehearse um i will have oh i have a weakness in is something in germany i drink coca-cola when i'm there i don't drink coca-cola when i'm stateside fascinating but <laughs> ladies and gentlemen we're getting ladies and gentlemen we're getting into the mind of gura schmidt and his <laughs> his backstage routines his travel itinerary like his travel routine this is this is this is gold um i mean i and and it's funny because that's the one thing i ask i'm not really like one of these high maintenance artists like i need you know uh, spaghetti bolognese from x restaurant you know at at at, at piping hot temperatures backstage, but I will ask for a Coca-Cola. There's something about German Coke that I really love the taste of. No disrespect to our good old American Coke, but German Coke, it help, it keeps me sort of functioning without having to hit jet lag too much over there. Because normally we don't have the luxury when we go over to have so many days extra. Because usually once you land, you're going to have to rehearse the next day if you're you know, sometimes even the same day. It took me 24 hours to get there now with Corona because there's no direct flight to Frankfurt from New York. So I had to fly through Paris and I missed my connection. So Coca-Cola helped me stay stable. When I come back, I love to drink a lot of tea, a lot of fluids, a lot of like warm soup. Like I did like upon arrival, I'll do like, I love pho, like Vietnamese noodle soup pho. Man, you're speaking my language right now. Uh, oh, so, I, so good. So I, I, I hit the pho right when I got back um, to my apartment. We ordered some pho and um, trying to push through to not fall asleep before nine o'clock in the evening. That's really kind of the goal. Day three today will be the will be the difficult one. But by having conversations and staying active and doing things like this, it forces you to stay awake. I must say, I'm catching up on on uh, you know I'm back to teaching tomorrow at NYU, so I I need to make sure that I'm I'm up to date with all of my students' activities. So kind of hybriding between this performance life and teaching life is something that I've been doing for a very very long time. It just happens to be that because of COVID, we're a little bit out of practice. Um, so that takes a little bit more mental work to be like, oh, this is Giora the performer. This is Giora the teacher. This is Giora. How do I, how many pairs of underwear do I need to pack for this trip? Like there's that kind of work, which when we're really in the thick of it, pre-COVID, it was like, automatic pilot right yeah so i would love to talk to you about your your recent engagement with the phoenix symphony because you were you that was like the like the concert opener season opener for the phoenix symphony and then obviously yeah. your trip uh, to to europe and germany but um what was it like when you were i believe you're playing tchaikovsky concerto correct for yeah, phoenix yeah, Symphony. I, so I, I what was, was yeah. so what was that like being in front of an audience again like from your perspective after so long well, I, I have to say that um, it was kind of a surreal experience because you're like, I know these moves, right? I know the moves on the violin. I know the moves of the hotel to the hall to the dressing room to, you know, all of these things. But we're out of practice. And the level of um, sort of emotional drain um, that it took out of me was something that I didn't anticipate, I have to say, um, both emotionally, 
both physically, mentally. Um, it was, you know, one of those things where you are wanting to give so much to the public that you've missed giving to for two years. And that in itself is emotionally draining and physically draining that most artists either aren't aware of or you're not aware of and sort of take it for granted until you haven't done it for a very long time. And it's really like, you know, having not exercised for a long time. And then you, you go back and start to exercise again and you're like, oh, wow, this is, this is not as easy as I thought it was. And so here I was playing the Tchaikovsky Concerto, a piece that I've played countless times, a piece that I know backwards, forwards, frontwards, 3 o'clock in the morning, any time of day. Um, but I was having to pace myself in a new way, like running a marathon in a new way, um, that I hadn't had to do um, probably ever. Because the first time that I had played that piece um, was always, well, the first time I had played the piece with orchestra, was always in the context of coming out of it as a student, coming out of it of like working on it. And you're like, you're training. The level of training is so high that when you go into the concert, you're just like, boom, this is, this is just the final. It just works. It just works. This was a different story because um, the, 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 all of the elements that lead up to the music making um, were not so well oiled like before. And even like, oh, do I remember to take my pre-concert nap? How long of a nap is it going to be? I took a slightly longer nap one day than another day. Is that going to affect how I play tonight versus how I play the next day? Um, it was also incredibly dry, humidity-wise. I'm breaking hairs like gangbusters the people in the orchestra were saying i me, believe it i because it's so does, dry who does your rehairs i'm like it's not the guy who does my rehairs it's just the fact that we're playing in 20 percent humidity right now right and so all of these things are like sort of new bullets in a way that are being shot at you while you're having to do this thing that you really know how to do almost rote and so the, the one great thing, or sort of a couple of great things, is one, the conductor who I worked with, who is a dear, dear friend called Tito Munoz, who we don't even have to look at each other. We don't even have to talk to each other. You know, with some conductors, you have like the pre-rehearsal the pre meeting. And whenever he and I work together, that's not on the itinerary. We don't have to have the pre-rehearsal meeting. We just go in, first rehearsal, we do it. We Bam, talk just like it, that. You know, and he's like, I got you. Don't even look at me. That's great because when you can just focus on your own mechanics, music making, emotional well-being, pacing, all of the things that are required in playing a, a massive concerto like Tchaikovsky, which, I mean, it's like 40 minutes, almost 40 minutes where you're standing up there nonstop. So, so having somebody like him and also – collaborating with an orchestra that is so happy to be there. And it was really a remarkable feeling of chamber music, like really never before. A lot of times you might hear people say, oh, you know, playing with orchestra is just enlarged chamber music, which it is in the logistical form. But sometimes the vibe on stage is not quite chamber music. This like you're really, clearly the soloist, right? Yeah, like, yeah. like, yeah. And and in this particular case, there was really a camaraderie between. They had a guest concert master, a wonderful, a wonderful guy called Ruggiero Alifranchini, who was at the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra for many years. So he has he brought tremendous experience from what he was doing. The musicians were excited to have somebody like him as guest concert master. They were excited that I was there doing Tchaikovsky. We're doing this you know, war horse program, but they were so happy to hear this music. And everybody on stage was was having this sort of feeling that we are so lucky to be here back doing this and playing the music that we love. 
And I think that the audience, you know, we had this champagne reception after the first night because it was the 75th anniversary of the orchestra. And I had never seen a public in, with, in, in, in an American orchestra, in an American context, so moved and almost to tears, the people that I spoke with afterwards, that it almost put me to tears. Like, I, I was just like, this is why we do what we do. And I think post-COVID, or sort of in COVID, post-COVID, however you want to just, however you want to label it, I think that gratefulness for every moment that we have on stage and every moment that we can sit together and listen, that's going to be there for a while. And I think that's a good thing because nothing is going to be taken for granted anymore. Every note, every minute of preparation that is required to put these great works on stage in front of an audience is going to be sort of squeezed and savored and the audience will not help but take that in. I'm convinced of it. Because if the musicians are giving that, they the, the public feels it. I've been talking to a lot of musicians in my, in my circle as well. And the amount of musicians who are so excited to be back on stage, but also the audiences who are just excited to be hearing live music again is just like, I can't remember a time. I don't know if you can remember a time where people in, you know, in the States going to a symphony orchestra are that excited to be in live performances again. You know, totally, I, totally. I, I, think, I think it's I think, great. I think, yeah. I, I think, I think it's great too. And I think, I think there is, um, look, there's a reality that especially, especially here in the States, there, there is a lot of competition for your live entertainment. And classical music isn't always in the top 10, let's just say. And for a variety of reasons, it's the, the sheer art form itself can be intimidating. That's a whole it other can, podcast episode right there. That's a whole <laughs> other podcast. I mean, and it's, it's too expensive. And what do we wear? And what do we eat? And where do we park? And, you know, I mean, it goes on and on and on and on and on. But I think that um, for the first time in, in, I think, in my lifetime, in our lifetimes, that we have been associated with this art form, Certainly in this country, I agree with you. I think there is an excitement for wanting to come to the hall that I have never witnessed before. Whereas one of the things that many people will say, for instance, in Germany or in Austria, primarily the German-speaking countries like Germany, Austria, Switzerland, classical music is the music of that society. It's engraved when, in their culture. It's engraved it, in their yeah, culture. Yeah, you right. Know, you... you the houses of the men that we play that are dead are right there. Like you can go to the Schumann house, you can go to the Beethoven house, you can go Precisely. to the Mozart house. Yeah. You can't you can't do that here. I mean, you can do that a little bit. Like Dvorak has a place here and had a place here in New York and and Bernstein and Gershwin. There is that, but it's not the same. One of the things that that I have always noticed, especially in playing in the German speaking countries, is that People are so used to going to concerts, much more so, I think, in and and the the size of the audiences, whether they're big or small, because there's governmental support very often from the state, is less of an issue than it is in America. You know, in America True. We, yeah. we need to we need to sell two thousand seats for a symphony hall in order to make it a successful evening financially to break even exactly yeah and that that in itself as a sort of business model is very challenging especially now with corona right where we cannot have uh 2000 seats in the hall filled right so i think that um that's going to have to change a little bit in terms of the business model, how we sell the tickets, and so on. And again, that's a whole other podcast. Right, but I've, I've talked about this on the Violin Podcast with other musicians too. Like, you know, because of the internet, the, the possibilities are endless. You know, the way where people can reach any kind of genre of music to 
someone that's on their phone, it's, it's, it's incredible, right? I think there's so much opportunity, but I do agree with you that the, in terms of the business model, the business model, I think is kind of outdated. And I think it needs to be updated to what, what can be, what can be feasible and more realistic in the 21st century. I think there's so much possibility and, you know, like a lot of American orchestra is relying on because of their nonprofit status or relying on grants or relying on state funding and their local arts council. But again, that's, it's just simply not enough. So they're relying on ticket sales or private donors or private companies, you know, with their philanthropic endeavors. Um, you know, I'm in I mean, Boston. I think, I so think, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, it, exactly. And it's, and it's this, I think if we can, if, we can get some silver linings from what we've been able to establish technologically during COVID for classical music. Um, I think we will all be better off. I think the idea, there was such resistance to streaming. There was such resistance to any kind of broadcasting without financial compensation, full stop, especially with the large orchestras, that now out of necessity... We've had to rethink that whole operation, right? And so I think if we can achieve some kind of hybrid model where the choice can be yours. Do you want to experience it at home or do you want to experience it with us in the hall? And if you want to experience it at home, the ticket will be X. If you want to experience it in the, in the hall, the ticket will be Y in terms of cost. And give people the option. Um, I think that might be an interesting way to kind of continue this but have this sort of hybrid not dissimilar from you know what they were talking about at universities where you know some students who were able to come in would do so and the students who and the students who couldn't or didn't feel comfortable could take the classes remotely so I think if we can sort of extend that somehow into the concert hall it might not be such a bad thing for business now there is so much fine print and so much I was just gonna say and gray area that it's it's you know, I would be naive in saying that, oh, it's that simple. Of course it isn't. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, but I think that, you know, when 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 many symphony orchestras were trying to pivot and figure out how can we continue our relevancy to our public, it became not just about the money, it just became about staying present in people's minds so that the institution doesn't go extinct. True. And I think that as a motivator um, sort of put the right priorities for people because so often in this country we're dealing with What's the bottom line going to be? What's going to sell the tickets? What's what's going to make sure that we stay where we want to be from a bookkeeping standpoint? And you can't do everything artistically that way. And that's one thing that 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 I really and the thing is when you talk to the Germans, they complain about a whole other slew of problems. Don't get me wrong. There's problems on both sides of the pond. Sure. Yeah. But you won't you won't hear that complaint. You'll hear sort of other other you know bureaucratical issues and so on. But the the issue of how many tickets do we need to sell for that show? Um, I guess that's an not, ongoing question, right? It'll always ongoing, be a, it, it'll it'll always yeah. be a forever question because even like pop groups and pop artists these days from what I've heard, they, they, they have these huge, massive tours, but they, sometimes they break even or even lose a profit a little bit, right? Because they're trying to sell out stadiums and everything. Exactly. And even people, even people that you would think would have no problem selling, have problems selling, Um, you know, and, and it just goes to show you, it's not like, well, don't take it personally. You know, I don't take it personally. You know, if, if this many people show up or this many people don't show up, there's so many reasons for that, that it's not like, well, oh, if I'm not, you know, so-and-so, or it has to do with so many factors. Um, 
And one of the things that they're talking about in Germany, a dear friend of mine is, is, is a presenter there who is being faced with these issues where they're saying many people don't feel safe yet to come back. Many people are not vaccinated. Many people are just like, you know what? Don't want to risk my, it. Don't want to risk it. Not on my list of things to do right now. And Interesting. That's just the way it is, you know. And this is this is a country that has over, I think, like 125 symphony orchestras. A country that small, and the halls are empty. The difference is is that the state and the regions will support those institutions so that even if the seats are empty, the lights won't be dark. Sure. Um, which, is, which is different than the New York Philharmonic. Mm. You know, the yeah. New York Philharmonic needs to sell those tickets to make sure that they can pay their bills, even though they have an endowment and all these different things. You know, I mean, it's, it's just it's a different model. Yeah, and no, this is it's a very interesting conversation because I love, you know, talking business and entrepreneurship. And speaking of entrepreneurship, you have collaborated with uh with the person who was uh, a season 2 premiere of the Violent Podcast, Marcelo Gonzalez, and he, both of you collaborated on this really impressive shoulder rest and for those of you who are listening, you can't really see it, but I rec- I'm going to put a link in uh, the podcast notes, so that way you can take a look at the video of my of my of my full review, and also I'll link um, Giorgio's website to, to for you to have a look at this shoulder rest. But I want you to talk a bit about how this project of the shoulder rest came about because this is a very <laughs> unique product. And it's a very unique product. It's it's really it's different. It's, but yeah. I feel like it is definitely you're 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 going for like a niche market for a very specific kind of violin players. So I would love for you to speak on this. Well, um, yeah, this is I, – I, I have one here. Um, it's, it's really unlike any other product on the market, and I'm not just making a sales pitch. I actually use it. Um, the way this started – and again, as we had said sort of when we were just chatting before, before we were rolling, um, if you had told me pre-COVID that I would have collaborated on a shoulder rest product for violinists all over the world, I would have been like, you're out of your mind. Um, this started purely from what I think many of you and your listeners can identify with, with a lot of COVID extra time, and we started to rethink our whole gear operational setup, whether it be rosin or strings or chin rests or shoulder rests. What have you? Because finally you have the time to experiment, right? Either Precisely. you're like on the road, like performing yeah. or you're teaching, but not like finally you have the time, like, oh, I can finally experiment you have the now. Time. So, <laughs> so what, what really prompted it was kind of laziness because, because with the Zoom teaching, I would grab my fiddle, which is right here on the chair next to me, and I would start to play. And I was too lazy to put on my bar style shoulder rest in full disclosure. I was just like, eh, let me just grab it and show what I'm talking about. And then I put it back down. And as I'm playing, I'm realizing, wow, this particular fiddle that I play, which is a wonderful old Italian fiddle, um, really sounds better without a shoulder rest. Now, Mm. It's totally different than the opinion that I had when I was playing a contemporary violin prior to this. For about five years, I played a wonderful contemporary violin that was built in 2000. That violin, when I tried the same experiment of shoulder rest, no shoulder rest, sounded better with a bar-type shoulder rest. Something about the way it clamped on the sides focused the sound, directed the sound a little bit more. So I didn't think anything of it. I just thought... Okay, I'm always going to use a shoulder rest. And I had tried, you know, this brand and that brand. I mean, it, you know, it doesn't matter, but all kind of the same idea. And but with this fiddle and during COVID, the wake up of it sounds better without anything clamping on the sides. That was like the first light that went on. It's the clamping factor. Mhm. And 
So I start going down our internet rabbit hole. You know, I'm like, I'm looking up foams, I'm looking up rubber bands, I'm looking up all kinds of different things. And the first person I called was someone who I consider a, a friend and, and mentor, Pinka Zuckerman, um, who for years has shunned shoulder rests, and he's always played with something under his shirt. Very and similar I, to like Isaac Stern, he did that, right? Very similar yeah. to Isaac Stern. In fact, that's where sort of that's where he got it from. You know, it's shoulder rests are one of those things that, and I think many of your listeners can identify with this, is kind of passed down from our teachers. Like whatever our teachers have used, that's what we use. It's just one of those things, you know. Um, and so I phoned Zuckerman and I said. So I think I'm I think I'm joining your club of no shoulder rest. He's like Mazeltov. And and I said, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." <laughs> so funny. But but tell me, what what do you use under that shirt? Are you using a schmata? Are you using what are you folding up in there? Are you using like a, you know, paper towel? What are you using? So he showed me what he uses, which is like a it's like a sandwich of like a a, a, a microfiber handkerchief wrapped in you know the non-slip rug covering and sure, he, yeah and he, and he rubber bands it in two places so it has kind of a, a little bit of a bend and it keeps the fold together and he sticks that under there that's it it's maybe three quarters of an inch thick so i said great thanks a lot so i tried it and when i'm you know messing around for myself it's okay but i knew that when concerts resume and at that time we were in the thick of lockdown we didn't know if concerts would resume but i was like if i ever play again um you know uh, a, a warhorse concerto like the brahms or beethoven i'm not going to be able to sustain that it's it's I, I don't have the body type you might it might slip underneath your shirt right it's yeah fatiguing when i go up on the g-string i feel tired all of these different things so i was like okay this is not for me i mean for those of you who know how zuckerman looks he's a big dude with like big shoulders and it's kind of he just sticks it in there and it works you know it, it's that's not for i've got a lot of situation here so didn't work so then i started looking at foams and i started looking at different things and layering all these different things and the problem with that is i found something kind of a neoprene foam that was very the problem with most foams is they compress right so i was looking for something that didn't compress i found something that got pretty good but it dampens the sound i was like not pleased with that aspect of it because i could really hear the difference tonally and then I'm on a message board, I think on MaestroNet or Violinist, uh, viol, not Violinist.com, I think it was MaestroNet, actually, which is more for, like, makers and luthiers and, like, it's more, like, for trade, like, really, really trades. Like, Violinist.com, that's more for, like, players and aficionados. MaestroNet is a really good resource for, like, tradesmen. I see. And... A guy posted a photo of an old wooden shoulder rest made in England by a guy called Peter Voigt. And he writes, does anybody know where I can get another one of these? Because it sounds great. And the concept was very kind of similar in shape. And it clips just on like two little places and it doesn't dampen the sound. And I was like, that's very interesting. So at the bottom of this board, Marcelo puts his email. Mm. And he says, um, I have developed a shoulder rest that is kind of similar in shape. If anybody's interested, send me a note. So again, we've got time. It's COVID. Sure. Normally, normally I'd be like, I'll send an email to this guy whenever it never it's one of those things that you'd end up never doing and whatever. But I I was curious, so I reached out to him. And here's where it gets even funnier. He says, um, yes, I do make these shoulder rests and I've experimented with different shapes and and so on. 
you may not remember me, but you came to play the Beethoven Concerto with my orchestra in Santiago, Chile in 2007, where I sit principal second violin. Mm. And I said, yes, I remember that. The conductor was really not good. Oh, God. (laughs) Yes, the conductor was really not good. So we had a good laugh. He sent me his photo. He said, do you remember me? And I said, yes, I do, actually. He had the same glasses. He looks the same. I said, but you weren't making shoulder rest back in 2007. Otherwise, I would have remembered that conversation back then. He said, no, I was sort of tinkering around with it, whatever. And then he said, let me make you one. So I said, let's go. So he made me one. I bought it outright. I didn't expect anything. I said, listen, we're all trying to make a buck now during COVID. I don't need a, I don't need a gift. Just charge me what you want and, and let's go. So with COVID, so I put one in and I ordered it with him over WhatsApp. Like this is not like, this is not like a complicated. This um, this is such a great story. I love it. This is like so 21st century. I love it. Yeah. Like, like, so I ordered it on WhatsApp. There's, you know, he doesn't have a website. He's like one guy, you know, and he, he's a fiddle player who is, is good with his hands. You know, one, we're not all good with our, like, I couldn't do this, but he's doing it. Right. right, Neither could I. Yeah. Right. So. I think I ordered it with him in like February or March of 2021. And by the time I got it because of COVID with the delays of shipment from Santiago, Chile, it got to New York like two months later or something. It was, it was bananas. I was like, when's this thing going to get here? You know, if it even gets here, I kind of forgot about it. I'm like, when it get whatever. And in full disclosure, I was really expecting, and I know that all of your listeners have this experience, where we order another toy, we try it for two seconds, it goes right in the drawer. Mm-hmm. And yeah, many, you're many absolutely of these right. Things, many of these things are non-returnable, so you can't even ship them. You can't, it's just once you buy it outright, you can't return it back. Yeah, absolutely. You can't return yeah. it back. So every violinist I know has a drawer full of e strings that they don't like. Shoulder rests that they don't like, rosins that they don't like, and I, I have one really, right there actually. I'm <laughs> staring at it right now. Well, we all we all have those drawers, and I literally thought, okay, you know, I gave the guy a few bucks. It finally it'll get here when it gets here. I'll try it for two seconds, and I'll probably put it back in the drawer, and I'll I'll either keep searching or whatever. The thing finally arrives. He says, "You gotta WhatsApp me an unboxing. I'm so excited that you have this. It finally got here, you know." So I'm like WhatsApping him while I'm doing the thing, and first of all, I pick it up. I'm like, "What? What? Like it has no weight?" Wow. It's, yeah. It's. I'm just like, okay, just for this alone, I'm like, hats off to you, brother. Like, even if I don't like it. You've managed to create a product that is the lightest, literally the lightest shoulder rest I've ever, you know. Mm-hmm. So he starts explaining to me the unique attachment system, which is with these, you know, these these foam pads that use the special glue that he's developed. He's sort of formulated this glue that he said works even on Ray Chen's Strad. It hasn't damaged Ray's Strad. So I'm like, well, if it haven't if it hasn't damaged Ray's Strad then I think my Roca will be all right and any other fiddle will be fine, especially since Ray doesn't own his fiddle. It's from a Japanese foundation. And he's like, they haven't complained. So so he's like, we put this glue on, let it dry, this and that, and you start to put it on and you'll see that it sticks. Right? So I put it on and I'm like, this is, this is the greatest thing I've ever felt in my life. Like, it's, it's so simple. And... The whole idea of need of needing a needing a curve is kind of a myth because, like, I mean, at least if you're a collarbone player, what do I mean by collarbone player? So if your three points of contact are chin, jaw, and collarbone, right? This kind of triangle here. If you were to put the violin on flat, right, you're you're not going to want it at an angle. Right. There's, there's right. no reason yeah. for it to be at an angle. So, and that's something that was so interesting about this shoulder rest for me in particular, because I am a collarbone player. I have a I would say I have a longer neck than you. And um, 
And for me, it's, I, you know, for the people who are watching this on YouTube, you know, I could put this on no problem and it sticks on accordingly. I mean, I have, I have to say that it took me maybe a little bit to get the glue on, but once I, once it's on, it's on actually, as a matter of fact, I don't have to take it off my violin. I kind of just slide it in my violin bag and it just stays on. I don't have to. Wow. That's, that's amazing. Cause my, my case is rather thin, so yeah. I have to, I have to take it off, but I, I use these <clears throat> clear sort of covers mm -hmm. to protect just from getting done i haven't reapplied the glue since i started playing this like may may june july august september october six months i've been playing with this i haven't reapplied the glue wow that's interesting okay so, yeah so, so so but but literally like going back to what i was saying so if you're a collarbone player right so if you put the violin here without anything underneath notice it's not tilted like there's no tilt right exactly and so this idea and when you watch and i tell my students this all the time when you watch the great fiddle players most of which use nothing or a small handkerchief or anything none of them are tilting their violin like heifetz oistrach milstein everything was all always flat level always flat it's somehow with the so this literally just and I sort of explain this in, in my videos and sort of trying to educate folks about this, is it just acts as a riser. So you're taking the ribs that would be this thick and I've now made them this thick. So now you can just sandwich this thing right into you and nothing changes because you're, you're keeping the same flatness that you would want to have anyway. Right I there. agree. I agree. And also, I, you're someone who plays with the jacket on right yes i yes. play with it so you know yeah. all, all of a sudden you know for all the people who play with a jacket on you know the jacket on stage also adds a little bit of cushion too and it'll it adds on top of the shoulders so you know Absolutely. when you're when you're practicing at home i think oftentimes and maybe you can comment on this with 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 uh, your students but students pra don't practice with their you know with like uh, their concert attire all the time so all of a sudden they go on stage it doesn't feel right that you're absolutely right, and yeah. it's funny that you say that because um, I was talking about this with one of my with one of my male students just a few weeks ago, um, who uses another shoulder rest. He uses the the Pirastra Korfka rest, which is a fine rest. Um, That's the one where you kind of put in the microwave and you can bend the wood and yeah. The all... previous the right the previous version was the microwavable version. I think they I think they have since. Um, made the wood bendable without needing to heat it. Oh, I see. Um, I know that was their shtick in the beginning that you have to like microwave the thing, which is uh, like people are asking me about having it being weird putting glue on this thing. I think it's weirder having to microwave your shoulder. Rest. <laughs> but that that's a whole other discussion. There's got to be some kind of pitch, you know, <laughs> or yeah, else it wouldn't they, be unique. They, yeah, maybe they were in 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 cahoots with uh, Whirlpool or General Electric to like micro, you know to sell more microwaves. I don't know, but but um, he uses the Parastra Korfka rest, and he 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 likes it. And I'm not trying to you know. Of course, he did ask me what this is. He try, he doesn't want to change it. But what we are changing, because what I'm noticing in his use of that is he has the thing so bent that the violin is really quite tilted like this, and it's affecting his bow direction. So Interesting, yes. Why am I bringing this up? I had him wear a blazer the other day mm. in the lesson. I said, I said, you know what? I'm like racking my brain here. And, I, and I, it's funny that you mentioned this because I said, I think we need to change the tilt. And I want you to bring your blazer to your lesson. And we're going to take that into account for how you need to practice with it. Because I don't want to change your tilt and then you're going to put a jacket on and it's going to then change it again. So I want you to get used to something for when you wear your jacket for orchestra concerts. That's how it's going to feel. And he looked at me like I was from the moon because he was like, wow, I've never had a teacher want me to like bring my concert close to the lesson i was like 
we got to think outside the box here because sure. your, your your angle is so much like this that I I can't get him to play like flat flat hair to draw the sound to draw the sound so everything is like this so the sound is too thin all of it so yeah right so I, that, I exactly that, you, know, you know that's a whole other thing in terms of you know pedagogy concept um, of how I how I like to play how I teach to play there's a certain concept of sound that I like and I practice what I preach I'm not one of these that talks about one thing and then I go on stage and I do something else you're right yeah I, I love I love when my students come to a concert that I play if they can because they see exactly what I'm talking about in the lessons as I'm doing it. And so the angle is big. Angle is huge. And in fact, this is a, a, a component in violin setup that I think sometimes goes under the radar. Because you have, this is why many old school teachers are known for throwing shoulder rests out the window, you know, like Aaron Roseanne. Aaron Roseanne was one of the first ones in sort of, you know, this generation of, of students that was really against his students using shoulder rests. Um, I know Zuckerman is another one. I know, um, I think Sylvia Rosenberg. I'm just thinking of like New York, New York people that I know. Um, um, and then, you know, Perlman plays without a shoulder rest, but he doesn't sort of push his students to not use a shoulder rest. Or, But, like, when I was studying with him, it was never a discussion, really. It was just it either works or it doesn't. Um, unless a student would perhaps come to him with a question of um, how's my setup, I don't think he would even think about it. I think, yeah, you bring up a lot of interesting points, especially, you know, with, with the shoulder rest and setup. And I, I teach very similar, similarly to you. I mean, I don't, I don't have like collegiate level students, but you know, I do, a, I specialize in a lot of beginner students. So I, 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 I emphasize to the parents who are working with their kids, this is important. This foundation of holding the violin, like I have, I have to spend a couple of years just reversing that process. If you, if you learn it, if you learn it wrong the first way, you're absolutely so, right. Yeah, you're absolutely and, right. And 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 I think it's it's in a way more imperative when you're studying as a youngster that concept of setup because then, let's say, as you get more proficient and you graduate to a more, you know, advanced level and a, and a different teacher, having to not undo that is so much better than having to, I mean, we all have experienced, I mean, I remember having to undo many things that I learned, you know, primarily bow and I mean, a lot of things, you know, so if you can, if you can avoid that for a young, for a youngster, especially when they're starting out, it's also good. Yeah, but something that we talked about before we started rolling the podcast is the difference in, because you did some master classes in Germany, right? And I would love your take on the difference not the differences, I guess differences, but the unique problems that each student in each continent faces, like the students in the U.S. versus the students that you were teaching in the master class in Germany. And I would love for uh, the audience to kind of get your take on that. Well, it's th this is always um, a fascinating thing for me because I, I love working with with young talent wherever I go, um, whether it's at home in New York or in other states across the country, I'm always, you know, asking the local university or the local arts high school or an opportunity to hear young people play. It's very important for me, not just to share information, but also to have a thumb on the pulse of what's going on out there in terms of the level. It's very interesting for me sure. to kind of see what's going on, both the pros and the cons of that. Now, in Europe, what is fascinating to me is that especially when playing German music, what do I mean? 
Mozart, Beethoven, Schubert. Mendelssohn falls into that category as well, of course, but primarily I noticed this in Mozart, Beethoven, Schubert, some Brahms, some Bach. There is an understanding of how to, for instance, taper a phrase stylistically in Mozart. Like, what do I mean by that? When I, when I say... So that you don't go, meaning do you go directly into the note or do you taper away from that, the the end of the phrase? Right. That finesse is clear. Right, so and of course that was that was you were playing Mozart's fifth concerto, right? Yeah, yes, and, that's what and, I thought. And and um, and that was a good name that tune. And um, I find that working with a student that has studied, whether they are German natively or have studied in a German-speaking country for a long period of time, I'll give you an example. I heard one very talented Israeli young man. But he's been studying in Germany since he was 15. He's now 22. So he's as much German as he is Israeli. And he played such beautiful Mozart. Now, when he played Prokofiev, not as strong. Hmm. Not as strong. It was missing the teeth. It was missing the... The The grit. The the grit, the brusqueness that maybe we here in America have a little bit more of in terms of sound production, you know. This kind of sound. That's I have the, to that's say, the, though, yeah. your gripping of the string is so impressive. By the way, if anybody of you are watching on YouTube, that's what I try to teach my beginners to get that pinky bent. Yeah. The pinky and that, the thumb, that, man. That, that's that all stems, it is. That stems from cole, which which cole in French literally translates to glue. It's a sticking that you can and I call cole kind of the seed of the tree. Because if you can plant that seed with that stickiness, then you can expand it to detaché, martelet, staccato, spiccato, sautier, all these different things stem from this kind of control and flexibility. And I talk about it with curling your fingers and bending your thumb, you create this letter C in profile that C equals cushion, C equals control, C equals catching. All of those things is a great way to sort of remember this. So, but why am I bringing that up? Because the the refinement of, and it has to do with value system on either side of the pond. Whereas in, a, in Germany... There is less of a priority, I find, in terms of big projective sound. Projective sound meaning sound that can carry into the back of the hall like 2,000-seat American Symphony Hall kind of thing. That, and, it's, and it's kind of, I connected a little bit with Broadway, like meaning musical theater, Right. I have a lot of friends in Broadway musical theater and and actors and so on, and they always talk about projecting to the back row with their speech, their enunciation, their diction, and so on. And I think for us as instrumentalists in America, there is a little bit of that value system as well that is taught certainly in what we associate kind of the Northeast New York training school. And that filters into a little bit of your neck of the woods in Boston and a little bit down south in Philadelphia. But it's this kind of the northeast I-95 kind of sound. And, oh, man, and, that I-95. That I-95. <laughs> right. Now, the I-95 sound. We'll, we'll, we'll coin that. <laughs> we'll coin that. The I-95 sound. Now, the Germans don't like the I-95 sound. They think we're aggressive. They think we're nasty. They think we honk and squeal and curse and do all these things. We're inelegant, us Americans, on the I-95. Mm-hmm. 
And in some ways, they're not wrong. But for me, the best is this hybrid. Can you do both? Can you pull out the grit when you need it for the repertoire? But can you taper the phrase in a Mozart or a Schubert? And can you incorporate, sometimes I was working with somebody on Schubert where they were playing with such a wonderful sort of tenor sound all the time that I said, you know what's missing for me in your Schubert is a little bit of bass and baritone. That I was losing this and and the young man said to me, you know, you're absolutely right. He says, this is something that I've been struggling with. And I said, you know what? It's technical. Because you're not playing with your full palette of sounding point. They play very often here, you know. Uh, very close to the fingerboard, right. Mm-hmm. And then you stay there. But if you stay there, the color doesn't change. Like I talk very often about this as being your canvas. Absolutely. You want want richer, concentrated color, you go closer to the bridge. You want more pastels, watercolors, you go more towards the fingerboard. But that has nothing to do with the type of pressure that you put on the string. If you want the sound to carry, you still have to play in the string. So... If you're playing on closer to the fingerboard and you're more up here, like elevators in the surface, you get a very beautiful, sweet kind of almost tenor soprano sound. But very often, that doesn't go past the yeah, it doesn't project. Sure, doesn't project. And then what's amazing to me is then they think something's wrong with their violin. They need a different violin. Mm-hmm. But it's not true. You know how much money I've saved people? Saying, saying, <laughs> I, bet, you know, I bet you saved a say, lot of money. Say, Millions. Saying, <laughs> saying, saying, if we just work on your barm, I just saved you at least $250,000 in trying to find something Italian that's a little bit louder. Like, right there. You don't yeah. need it. You that's don't true. need it. They, I, they, yeah. I agree. Bot, your body is your strap. Yeah, 100%. Ex- oh, your body's just stretch. See, you should make that into a t-shirt or a bumper sticker. I'm man. I'm afraid I I stole it from someone. There was another educator who's who runs a program your body is your strad. So I got it from okay, her. Okay, fine. But I, I I like it. I like yeah. it. You you should collaborate maybe on making like some new hats or t-shirts or something. Yeah, I mean I I mean definitely. <laughs> I'll maybe call, copyright it or trademark it or uh, something or trademark, but or do like a <laughs> Do like a sticker you can put on your hard on your hard violin case or something. Bumper sticker uh, on the card. Bumper sticker, yeah. <laughs> but I, I think that I think that um, that's for me what I observe. For sure. The the, 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 the it's just a difference in value. It's a, it's 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 a, first of all it's a difference in value, but second of all it's also in the water system. It's it's just when you hear a German orchestra, for instance, or or an Austrian orchestra play Mozart, Schubert, or Beethoven. They do it like they just turn on the lights, you know. That doesn't take any extra rehearsal or any extra effort. Whereas perhaps Shostakovich, Prokofiev, uh, Bartok, this requires a little bit more, you know, rehearsing to try to get the right sound. Here, you can have a much easier time with, for certain people, playing Shostakovich, Bartok, Prokofiev, things like this. But if you try to hear an American orchestra play a Schubert symphony really well, that almost never happens. That is really... Um, and that has to do with the DNA of the education here, the sound concept, the sound value system. We just don't grow up with it in the same way. I mean, young German students... They hear that sound from when they're little, from when before they're born. So they know that Mozart has to sound like this and Schubert has to sound like this. You can't just whack it. You know, Absolutely. here you have very talented players, but they don't grow up with it in the house the same way. Um, it just, it's just the way it is. You know, that's, it's the same way 
why f- certain food tastes differently over there than over here. But when they come here, you know, they 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 want to they want to go to McDonald's, and when we go there, you know, we want to eat a nice uh, Wiener Schnitzel. You know, it's the same <laughs> thing. So it's it, but and and but it's all good, and that's why I think the 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 sadness a little bit is the market is getting more and more divided and COVID isn't helping that meaning that you have European artists staying in Europe and American artists staying in America. And there is the Atlantic sort of divide that unless we have more of these occasions to exchange ideas and to really, it's not enough just for a German orchestra to come on tour to America. They need to go into the conservatories and work with the students and talk to them about why they play differently and how they do it technically. There's a technical way to articulate why it happens. It's not just, well, because we drink Viennese water or Munich water and you guys drink New York water. Sure. It's not teachable. It Mm -hmm. is teachable. I agree. It is. Because when I talk to them the other way about how to curl their fingers, bend their thumb, and lean into the string a little bit more and trust that the string is flexible. Nothing bad is going to happen if you exercise a little bit more weight into the string, but that you have the control to taper it and do as such. And their eyes light up. They're like, oh, my gosh, I didn't even know I, didn't even know I have that kind of control. I completely agree with you on all fronts. Uh, but as we approach the end of our time together, um, I want to I want to thank you for yeah. offering your your knowledge to our listeners. But I ask this question on every single on every single violin podcast episode and uh, to every single guest. How, sh- how what should I don't even know how to ask the question. This is why we edit, Gira. <laughs> editing, so, editing is 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 is, is edit, editing is the best. What can you say to the conservatory level student who's listening to this, getting value out of this? And they're, they're in conservatory, they're not really sure of what the musical landscape is going to be when they graduate, or there are kids who are auditioning for conservatories, and, you know, they're making a huge decision in their life. What can you offer that listener, that violinist who's listening today? Well, one of the things that I can offer is that music as a life, as a profession, has so many different facets that one is not even aware of when they enter conservatory or while they're training on their particular instrument. This is something that I have become more and more aware of the longer I have been involved with the violin, in music, in performing, in teaching, in sharing, um, that I think that the knowledge of how to be proficient on an instrument can sometimes be looked at as an entry point, not the final destination. Because what I think and what I see with people who have proficiency on an instrument, now what I mean by proficiency is it doesn't necessarily mean that they have to be professional on the world's great stages. Proficient means that you can get around, you can play some pieces whether it's for your enjoyment, whether it's for yourself in a recital, whether it's for yourself, for your family, friends, teachers, just that process of getting a piece from A to Z. That is what I consider proficient on an instrument. That as an entry point into a world of music where you are surrounded by musicians who are some of the most interesting humans on earth just by nature because we do this thing that not a lot of people do. And so our brains have to develop in a particular way that don't develop like other people's. So to be around those people, but to help make that world exist, meaning administratively, technically, pedagogically, musically, performance-wise, there's so many elements, manager, I mean, there's managers and administrators and recording engineers and coaches and conductors and travel agents. And I mean, there is so much that our music world needs to survive. 
This is what the end user doesn't always understand or realize, and what many parents don't always realize when they're sending their kids to these potential places. And they're very expensive, especially in this country. In Germany, it's less so. I tell a lot of my students when they finish undergrad here and they want to go to grad school somewhere, I say, look at Europe. It's much cheaper, and you get a whole other perspective that's not bad. That's one thing that I actually, if I could do it all over again, I would do some grad school in Europe. I would. Because you just, it's like both sides of the brain kind of thing. But I think viewing, studying an instrument as an entry point into this world of music, not to think so much of will I get a job in XYZ orchestra or will I get a job teaching in ABC university. I think that's too limiting. And in fact, sometimes not that interesting. I think that one of the things that I've really enjoyed during this COVID time is diversifying, whether it be a shoulder rest project or whether it be reaching some students that I wasn't able to before because of Zoom and having a conversation with somebody like you where if we were to have to do this in person, it would be a logistical, not a nightmare, but it would be much more complicated, right? Sure. Although I hope I get to meet you in person. I get to have another conversation with you in we, person. We will, whether it's in Boston or New York, it's a Abs date. Okay, you we got gotta, it. We, we got to put it on the books. But I think that one of the one of the most sort of heartwarming things that I see is sometimes students that I've encountered that have figured out how to have a how to have the violin be a part of their life, but not part of their income earning life. And that can mean so many different things that the rest of it is impossible for me to answer. But what I will say is that if you view it as an entry point into a most interesting and fascinating world, rather than a means to put bread on the table only, I think you will discover things of how music can be a part of your life and be a, a, such an incredible and loyal friend. And it informs other aspects of your life that you don't even realize until many, many years later. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Giora Schmidt, uh, American uh, New York-based violinist. Thank you so much. Really, really appreciate it. I'm going to leave all of Giora's links, social media, website, and also to the Ultralight. Uh, the G is it Ultralight G model? Yeah, Ultralight G yeah, model. G model um, Ultralight. Yeah. G model yeah. Ultralight. Yeah, I got the got yeah. the words backward, but yeah, yeah. G model Ultralight yeah. in the description below, so you can you know again I'm not I'm not getting sponsored for this. I believe in the product. I I use it every day since I received it in the mail. So uh, yeah, go check it out. Uh, watch the YouTube videos and uh, Giro. It's been a pleasure. I hope that I always promise all the the guests that I'm gonna I'm gonna definitely hopefully make some kind of crazy like trip to like meet all my guests in person yes. and then have like do the interviews again in person so yeah, but we'll, we'll have to have like a like a big ass pizza party or something oh man oh yeah i mean <laughs> before I'll, I'll go to new york for pizza any day so yeah, um yeah. anyways thank you so much and uh thanks uh thanks again for coming on the violent podcast really appreciate it my pleasure eric have a have a good rest of your week